Support for Oyster World Radio comes from you, our listeners. If you would like to support the show, visit the link in the show description or visit patreon.com forward slash oysterworldradio. For only $5 a month, you get all of the behind-the-scenes coverage of how these random interviews materialize, plus some travel tips. So don't miss out and support the show today. More support means meeting more people that you would normally never meet, less travel headaches while you're on the road, and you get to learn the ins and outs of everywhere I go. Become a Patreon and an expert traveler at patreon.com forward slash oysterworldradio and support the show today. Welcome to Oyster World. Radio. Hello, Oysters, and welcome to another episode of Oyster World Radio, the podcast where we broaden our perspectives by listening to the stories of people from all over the globe. I'm Nathan Lieberman, and this episode is number four of the four-part apartheid miniseries with our guest, Anesu Dawa. Anesu, well, I could go on and on about Anesu, but to keep it short, she truly embodies the mentality that resonates from the first generation of South Africans post-apartheid. This is a generation that is tasked with the reconstruction of a nation while also mending and reviving a group of people that have seen tragedy in its truest form. A tough task, but people like Anesu give me hope, and you will see why in a moment. Coming from Johannesburg, South Africa, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anesu Dawa. Well, Anesu, welcome to Oyster World Radio. We're really happy to have you. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm very well. Um, having a lovely Sunday. Yeah, it's a lovely Sunday in Johannesburg, South Africa. I wish I could be there with you. It's kind of cold up here, where I'm at right yeah. now in Spain. But oh man, how's that life sucks. in beautiful South Africa right now? Life in South Africa is very interesting. We're living in exciting times. Uh, a lot of changes are happening. You know, recently, I don't know if you're aware, but I think it is last week. There was a pastor, famous pastor, who raised a, a guy from the dead. Well, really? he, it was staged. Yeah, it was staged, and there are investigations. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of interesting things going on in South Africa, for sure. Interesting, and... yeah. It's early on in the year. Only, oh, This happened only in Feb, and... We have all these months to see what else, you know, comes up. I do got to say though, I I miss I miss South Africa a lot. There's something really beautiful about that country, and I didn't know much about it before I left. It, yeah. It, there's so many dynamics, and the people, of course, are wonderful. And we got to meet you in the sunny seaside of Durban, and I miss it. That was a good time. Yeah, it really was. Hey, eh? um, I had a lovely time in Durban. Um, yeah, South Africa is beautiful. It's like they called it, they called it the, the rainbow nation. Diverse races, diverse cultures, diverse languages. I don't know if you knew, but there are officially 11 languages in South Africa. Which is still um, just baffling to me. 11 but, different languages. And most people can speak yeah. seven or eight fluently. No problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know. It's beautiful. People here are generally open-minded and accepting of differences, you know, because of the 
the varieties, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah. Yeah, and you know, so I, much to celebrate. I, I felt that exact same thing. Everyone was so kind to to me and Jackie as we traveled through. It's just, it's a wonderful place. So everyone listening, go visit South Africa. It's great. But I also think that's a wonderful transition to your story. Mm-hmm. So we had you brought you on today because you're just overall badassery slash awesomeness, and. We had to have you on the show. And I think that's a really good place to start with your story. So you're not originally from South Africa. You're from their neighbor to the north, Zimbabwe. But when you moved to South Africa, you were young, eight years old, and you didn't know English or any of the languages that were in South Africa. Yeah. um, Yeah. uh, I was eight years old, raised by my mom, could only speak Shona which is my native uh, mother tongue. Is that only for I Zimbabwe only... too? Or is that Oh a... no, no. Zimbabwe you have uh, Shona in Debele and you also have Tonga. My mother actually is a Tonga. That's uh, the Binga region in, in 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 Zimbabwe. If I'm not mistaken it must be in the north of Zim, but I will just I'll reserve that comment. I could be wrong. (laughs) Those are the three that I know. Were any of those useful when you came to South Africa? None of them were, actually, because in South Africa, they speak your major ones, especially in Joburg, you have your Zulu, Afrikaans, and English. Yeah. So, and I do basic things, you know, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, please, thank you, you know. And um, so it was an interesting transition, learning how to speak English. In a, it was a diverse school, you know. Um, so obviously English was the medium, and they also taught us a second language, which is Afri- uh, Afrikaans. And I started learning how to speak Afrikaans, reading and writing it, and I did so well that um, in that year that I moved, I went to prize giving, and they gave me a prize. For that, so I'm grateful that I could adapt in terms of learning how to communicate quick enough, you know. Yeah, quickly this, enough. this really astounds me because I've been trying to learn German for the last year and a half with not a ton of success, and you not only did not know English and Afrikaans, the languages of the education in South Africa, but you learned both of those and learned what they were teaching you at the same time, and then got an award for it. So, yeah, yeah that's pretty awesome. How did you do that? What's your secret? How did you even <laughs> accomplish that? Um, look, I think, you know, things just happened suddenly for me. The way I moved, I didn't know I was going to move here. You know, I thought I'm just coming for a holiday to see Dad. But dad sat me down and said, listen, life in Zim is, uh, life is in Zim is more difficult and I want you to have more opportunities. And so you're going to live here. And I was just in that, okay, in that survival mode, like I need to make friends. So I need to learn how to speak what they're speaking. Um, and I need to pass in, in school because my father expects it of me and he was very strict. Um, I would come home and he would help me with homework and 
and um, teach me things that I didn't quite understand. If he wasn't around, my uncle would help his younger brother. Yeah, so so you had I had a good support system too, which was nice, but still a lot of it was on you. It's not, it's not like this is the only change that you had going on too. You were moving to a new country. You had to start over with your friend group, like you were saying. It seems like you had a lot going on at once. Yeah, I think by nature, I'm pers- I have a fear of missing out, in case I didn't tell you so. Yeah. I think the drive, <laughs> the drive to want to fit in is what pushed me to say, look, this is my new life, and if I'm going to be of any relevance and be validated and noticed... I need to learn X, Y, Z, and I just pushed myself. Yeah. Which I think definitely, I mean, a lot of people really struggle through that part. Was that easy for you? or did Was it the mission that drove you through or gave you the motivation to push through all those challenges? Mm. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But when you're young and... You're told what to do and how to do it. It's so much. And and when you have a string, strict upbringing, you just buckle down and do it. Mm-hmm. So that sense of, oh, I can't do this, didn't really cross my mind then. And that sort of started happening as I started getting older. You know, when dad wasn't as around often, you know, he had to go to work and... I had to now learn how to cultivate my own discipline. That's when it becomes much harder. But because I was around uh, eight, nine years old, I turned nine when I moved. So nine, ten years old, that age. Yeah. Yeah, I just buckled down and did what had to be done. That is a very powerful factor. But I I think also at the same time, there, you had so many challenges going in. We even talked about this a little bit before about South Africa was going through a huge transition within itself with a lot of backlash and side effects and the ending of the apartheid era and this new opportunities that were coming to South Africa, but also very, very tough challenges to still figure out. And here you were coming from Zim, an immigrant yeah. that didn't know the the languages and had to figure things out make new friends in an environment that wasn't friendly to foreigners so did you witness any of that too or how much of that stood in your way during this time period um yes i definitely as you're speaking uh one particular incident jumped out at me when the xenophobic attacks or prominent, I was now in high school. I must have been in grade eight or nine. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to a, I was shopping and this lady asked me a question, you know, she was asking something regarding a particular product, you know, and I couldn't understand because she was speaking in, uh, I think it was Zulu or some other vernacular, South African uh, native language. And and I told her, look, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand what it is that you're saying. And she said, well, where do you come from? What language do you speak? And I said, I'm Zimbabwe and I speak Shona. And she cursed me. And cursed this woman, she cursed me, yeah. She cursed me. And this woman 
black as I am, you know, we, we both, ha- we both, both nations, both Zimbabwe and South Africa have experienced, um, some colo- colonialization. We're both victims, but this is a fellow sister who was looking at me as if I'm an enemy, you know? So then that's when I started realizing that it's not safe for me to tell people that I'm Zimbabwean. So I started lying. I would tell people that I'm South African, but at home we just don't speak Zulu or Sutu or whatever it is. I, I had to conceal that. And that, that does affect someone's identity when you don't have the freedom to express who you truly are, you know, the fullness of who you are. And my language and my culture and my people are a part of that identity. So, yeah, there were challenges. Even in school, you know, because I was a black foreigner, right, there were divisions. There were the white kids who grew up, uh, experienced middle-class lifestyles, so they and and maybe in that group there'll be one or two black kids who they call them coconuts, okay? So perhaps the <laughs> oh, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. So perhaps these black kids also share the same socio economic class with the with the other white kids and then because of that they can mingle with these white kids. Mm-hmm. Then you had the other group of black kids who came from the townships. And if you were not ghetto enough, <laughs> like I wasn't ghetto enough, gotcha. I, I couldn't, you know, and I'm, I'm not implying uh, that ghetto-ness is a bad thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not implying it in a negative sense. You know, these are township kids. They have their own lingo and their own um, trends. It's a social and... circle, right? It's yeah. the group yeah. that you form because you're familiar with each other. It makes sense. Exactly. I couldn't fit in because I couldn't speak the local language. So then uh, forming friends was a very difficult thing. How did you, you know? get past that? Um, I had to adapt. I had to... So I started, there are certain things that are familiar among the white kids, right? Mm-hmm. And I started learning those things to fit in. And then, you know, I started learning the lingo and some of the, some of the, I don't know, trends that were familiar with the township kids. So I would transition in between the two. I never actually found a home or just to move from home sure. house to house. Yeah. It's just trying to, you <laughs> and know, I, survive that made and fit me... in when you can. Yes, yes. So that actually taught me to be to be adaptable. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Fit in with, with what's there when it's there and adjust when you need to and where you you need to. And it's taken me far in life, I believe. I would agree with that. Yeah. It's a very important skill. But this is something that has come up a couple times during 
uh, I guess my crash course for apartheid. I didn't know much about it before I came to South Africa, but that the groups were extremely divided or that was a design of apartheid was to keep the tribes and ethnic groups separate. It seems that when the regime and the rules ended, that really clashed when the country was trying to come together. As someone that lived through that rebuilding process, was that is that accurate? Do you think that's part of why there were so many divisions or hatred towards you? Is that they're, they've been divided for so long and now they're trying to come back together? Apartheid really did uh, a lot of damage, a lot more than I feel we truly understand as a people now. Because... It did impact me in my personal life, for example, like what I was saying that here I was, like, for example, I'm a 94 baby, so I'm a millennial, mm-hmm. you know. I was born when Madiba was president, okay. But the effects are still real, you know. I'm fortunate that I got to get the chance to mingle with people of different ethnic groups and so on. But in my interactions, you found different people. You found those kids that were raised by parents who would instill in them that they are no different from any other child of a different color or race. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in my shoes... I I was raised, my father is very open-minded. My mother naturally is open-minded. However, a lot of the external family members, from my father's side particularly, people who are angry, they are angry with white people. um, They're angry about the past. Let me rephrase that. Mm -hmm. So those divisions are real even now. Thank goodness they're not as intense. Things are not as intense. But in any community, you always find a group of people who find reasons to exclude themselves from other people. And we can't run away from that reality. You just mix and mingle with those people who are willing to mix and mingle with you. You know? Yeah. Um, So about choices. I could have ended up being uh, an angry black person, which a lot of people that I know are. You know, I have a lot of people, a lot of people I know are my age who dislike white people and who are angry about the wrongs of the past, who weren't even born in, 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 in those situations, but that anger their parents and their elders have has been transferred to them. So divisions will always be there, but be a peacemaker. Yeah, I think that was really well said. I think that was really well said. I think a lot of people do shrink back Mm. into that. And, you know, they have some right to from what happened to them and their families. I think that sometimes there is a right to be angry, but as someone that didn't do that, is there any, you said your father and your mother were quite open-minded, but you specifically, was there a way that 
you personally combat the anger or just mm. the emotions that come with what happened? Okay. So let's uh, look at my interaction, particularly with with white people from a young age. Um, I remember my mother, she studied in the UK and at some point she lived in the Netherlands. So being raised by her, I had an influence of white people and I didn't see any issues and dad is well-traveled and everything. He had a different upbringing. He grew up in the village. Mm-hmm. But he he started um, because of his life journey. He had to travel a lot to Libya and the UK and everything. And he also had health interactions with white people. So then I, I learned from observation to say, okay, these are two people with two different backgrounds. One who was exposed to white people more frequently than the other, but they both have something in in uh, familiarity, they both chose to put such differences aside and to connect with people at a common ground for the sake of connecting to people. It was no longer um, white people, you know, but just people. With me, because of that upbringing and that observation, I chose to follow suit. And also life experience. I mean, I, I, I went to a primary school that was diverse and then I moved to a high school that was predominantly white. And, you know, I had two options, being angry and isolated or to learn how to interact with other people that just happened to be mostly white at school and get on with my life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you, you're pretty well-traveled yourself. You went with your dad on a couple trips as well. And yeah. I'm sure all of those pieces came together in your mindset in some way. Yeah. Yeah, we used to travel a lot between Zim and South Africa. I've been to Zambia. I've been to the UK twice. On that topic, yes, something profound happened when I was in high school when you went to Mozambique. Because I was raised in Zim in South Africa, and these two countries were colonized by the British. And in South Africa, also the Dutch colonized them. Nonetheless, I grew up surrounded by people who speak English. If I couldn't speak the language that the other spoke, we would meet halfway with English. And then I go to Beira in Mozambique. And most of the people, they couldn't speak English. Was and, that the first time that you encountered that, that language it barrier? It was the first time, yes. That was so extreme. You know, I knew no word. I only knew three words, right, in Portuguese. <laughs> you know, obrigada, um, which is thank you. The feminine version is obrigada, and then the male version is obrigado. And I knew Fanta Uva, which is Fanta Grape. <laughs> just find the orange because it's so hot there and you so know. you do the, your two favorite drinks and thank you it's it's perfect yeah it's perfect. yeah <laughs> but you know before that i was very frustrated and i said to dad you know these people are so dumb dad they're so dumb how can they not be how how come they can't speak english and my dad said don't say that you don't say that people are dumb just because they can't speak a language that you can you know, they weren't colonized by the British. 
they were colonized by the Portuguese. And as such, Portuguese is the language that they know, together with their local dialect, the African uh, languages like Shangani that they would speak. So that was a profound lesson for me because I forgot, I forgot that I used to be in those shoes where I came as a foreigner in South Africa and I couldn't speak the local language, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was praised for learning, you know, no one said I was dumb. So how dare I now change and start belittling other people and saying, well, they're dumb because you don't speak the same language. So traveling does make you, it opens your eyes to different ways of being and it makes you more tolerant of other people and more accepting of other people, uh, of differences. It's okay. We don't have to speak the same language. Yeah, if you can reach absolutely. out, I will reach out, you know? So, yeah. So that was a pretty important piece of the puzzle that helped you develop into the mindset that you have because you grew up in a bunch of diversity, the diverse situations, and it's always mm-hmm. been super interesting to me to see how some people do fall back to what they know and become very angry and bitter. I see that happen a lot back home as well. But then also people like you and me that embrace it or at least get key pieces of information at the right time to help form a more opened mindset. And um, would you say that your travels in you, you would say that your travels really helps you in that? Yeah, yeah. Um, they really do help. Um, like, for example, when I met you, that was in Durban, isn't it? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Beautiful Durban, right on the beach. Durban, <laughs> yeah. And it was the first time I was traveling alone and I said, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna travel alone and explore the world as an individual interacting with other people without the influence of my parents and so on. And there were a lot of new things that happened to me during that uh journey, like for example, living in the what do they call it? At oh, the backpackers. The backpackers and the hostel and living with a yeah. bunch of other random people that you've never met before. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean I met this chick from Argentina and that guy from was it Netherlands? Yeah, he was that or Norway. Um, what was this? I'm Mexico? gonna have to ask him again. Yeah. <laughs> oh and boy. you and Jack. He's going to be really mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it was so interesting, you know, and learning that um, the owner of the backpackers also was a Zimbabwean, you know, is a Zimbabwean, um, Kathy. And she's a white woman, but she she still identified as an African and still identified as Zimbabwean, even though she she's been in 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 out of Zimbabwe for most of her life, it, it was profound. So when one has such experiences, you know, and I I always make it a point to always be receptive and always to learn for continuous growth, right? Yeah. Then it's it's a Japanese term. It's called kaizen, you know, continuous improvement. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And it's true. And I think this that trip 
meant a lot to you as well because you were coming out of quite a rough stretch that it seems like you were starting to hit your stride and you were getting good grades and you learned two languages off the bat and you were a good student. But there there was this rough stretch that we were talking about that seemed to knock yeah. you down for a little bit. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was a student studying a BA psychology and politics. And it's interesting how I got into the program. Um, the motive behind was just to understand the human mind and human behavior and how to better live with the people around me in the world, you know. Mm-hmm. And after my second year, I started observing a lot of things that were happening in this. At the time, a lot of the students I knew were um, struggling to find jobs and there's also this obsession with a lot of Africans to get the degree. Yeah. In apartheid times, it was matric. So matric is equivalent to the highest, uh, what do you guys call it? The highest level of, of, of high school education. What do yeah. you call that? It, it, it's a, it's the diploma or the high school diploma, high school level of education. Yeah. Yeah. So in apartheid times, that was the big deal. If you didn't have a metric certificate, people would treat you, people wouldn't be as considerate and life would just be more difficult. You wouldn't be taken as seriously in the working world, etc. And today it is the degree, you know. So there's this obsession with a lot of black people with getting the degree. You know, because there's this notion or belief that, you know, we need to work for what we have. We don't have the luxury of having an inheritance. A lot of the white people here, you'd find that maybe a a relative, perhaps the grandfather would leave an inheritance to the father and then to you, right? And a lot of black people didn't really have that. Even now, a lot of black people don't have the luxury of having an inheritance, even my father, you know, we're talking about it. He always wanted to have a degree. But because he was raised in the village, um, my my grandfather, actually, I, I come from a family of pioneers. He used to travel in South Africa. He used to be a driver. And there was a time he lived in Cape Town in the Winelands and he was a chauffeur. So then he came back. And he couldn't look after his children. So my father, who's the second from last, there were 10 children. My dad was the second from last. Uh, one of his older brothers took my dad to school. And my father now had to take the last born to school. So he couldn't go to university. He had to start working to support my uncle. Mm-hmm. So all he wanted was the honor of having his children have a degree. And we are four girls. So my first, uh, my, my sister, the first one did well. Um, she has a degree in mathematical statistics, honors degree. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, it is. Um, and then here comes me and I'm beginning to realize that a degree isn't everything. That what Africa really needs is not necessarily degrees, not saying degrees are not important. 
but we need revolutionary thinkers. We need radical innovation, you know, so we can yeah. start um, creating employment. These traditional jobs are now, yeah. they're, they're now dying out because of technology and how things are changing. There's now a population boom going on in Africa, especially in South Africa, where it is pretty much the hub of Africa. And every other African who wants to make it is coming here. And the locals here are also trying to make it here. You see all these um, demands placed on the government to create jobs that they are clearly failing to create. And yeah, so the yeah. weight of the world is starting to come down on your shoulders yeah. in university, which, you know, mm-hmm. is part of the process of yeah. learning more about the world. But. So, so how did you, now that you're really starting to see what's going on, are you gaining this perspective of not only the degree that you're pursuing and, you know, the transition of South Africa as a whole, what, what was your next step? How did you deal with all of that? So now I, I was like, you know what, I'm doing this, but I have the capacity to actually start a company. I'm smart enough. I'm driven enough. Let me drop out. And perhaps I'll be the next uh, Bill Gates or the next, uh, what's his name? Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that bug caught me and I dropped out. That was uh, mid-2016. That's when things went south because now my father, I I didn't address the issue face-to-face. I wrote a letter and I was also not transparent with him. I dropped out much earlier than he thinks. And, you know, I just told him, you know what, I know what to do. I know how to do it. You know, I know I'm supposed to have a degree. And, you know, how do I get it? I study hard. I study to pass tests, but I'm losing meaning. I've I've lost the why, the meaning. You understand? Initially, I would come in saying, you know, I would like to understand myself more and other people more. And... I just realized that psychology doesn't have those answers for me. Studying politics opened my eyes to how the the world at large um, countries are beginning to move from globalization to mercantilism, you know, trying to protect themselves. I mean, look what's happening currently, for example, in your country, the USA, um, where Trump is becoming less interested in opening the borders and you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. We're interested in protecting the people and, you know, building the walls. So, for example, so I was like, no, man, in Africa, we have many opportunities. Let me find where I can add value. And in that journey, I met a lot of talkers <laughs> and not doers, you know, yeah. going from meeting to meeting to have discussions, but nothing really changing. And, and at the time, I also had a bit of money, so I tried one or two ventures that went south, nothing happened, and, you know, now there's conflict at home, because that is like, you just go back to school. And I'm like, no, I'm not going back to school. I'm going to start a company and employ unemployed graduates, because I'm a boss like that. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm a boss and I am about to run this thing, revolution yeah. in South Africa. Let's do it. I, I, I know, <laughs> I know the the feeling. It's something that 
I ran into. Man, life can be really hard sometimes, can it? It's, it's, really a, it's a tough can, road. It's a tough road. But I wasn't ready. Yeah. I wasn't ready enough. You know, I was jumping into things I wasn't ready for. And with time, I started becoming stressed and losing weight. And, you know, that's when the turning point, the the last straw on the camel's back hit me. So before you before you say the last straw, too, this does seem like a really stressful time. You decided to go out on your own and yeah. things weren't exactly working that much. Yeah. And it seems like an environment with a lot of pressure, just constant pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of pressure. I'm black, female, young, trying to start a business, but I don't really have the know-how, the knowledge of of business because, you know, I've never been exposed to running a business before. Yeah. And so on and so forth. So then I, I started coughing and becoming frail in May 20, 2017, you know? Yeah. Uh, my immune system clearly was uh, compromised because of all the stress. I went, I thought I had pleurisy, you know, and then it was November. Things were really bad now because I was struggling to breathe and coughing blood and then thought I had cancer. <laughs> but um, after two x-rays, I find out that um, there's a possibility that I have TB. I go, I, I went, took myself to the hospital. This was November 2017, December 2017, sorry. Mm-hmm. Oh, just before that, when all this was happening, I started realizing that, okay, I need to to get my my life in order. And at the same time, I'm sick and I'm losing weight and all that. It's happening at the same time. There's just and so it, much going on. But fast forward to December 2017. I'm in a ward with other people. I'm fine. You know, they didn't just find out what's going on. And they realized that I have TB and... All of a sudden, I'm quarantined, you know? Yeah, do you remember what it was like to hear that news? Do you remember what you felt like or what happened immediately after they told you? I literally, I just, um, I got so discouraged. I got so numb. I think after everything that happened, numb is the word. I was numb. I was just like... Can my life get any worse now? Like seriously, because people die from TB. Yeah, TB, tuberculosis is a serious, serious disease. It's killed countless people in history. This is not something to be gentle with. Yeah, one of my uncles actually, when he died, he had pneumonia and TB and meningitis and two other conditions at the same time. So literally his body so it's crazy you know and now people are wondering how did you get this tb now i remember in may i went to a meeting and one of the members was actually sick and i shook their hand and i don't remember if i washed my hands or whatever but clearly they were not on treatment and you know it caught me and you know my immune system was down and there's the stigma in africa that if you have tb you have hiv aids so now that's the problem because I come from a family where I've had an aunt and four uncles die from HIV AIDS. 
And now dad is thinking, I've, I'm sick, you know, and I remember he spoke to me on the phone and he sent my older sister and he said, you know what, you need to find out if she's sick. And, and it's a very personal thing, right? Don't share your status with right, people. Right, right, right. The doctor <laughs> comes in with the results and the doctor loses her call. She's like, your father has no right to intervene in this. You know, you're not a minor and neither does your sister. Because now they are causing anxiety in you. And I, I do suffer from a bit of anxiety. Mm-hmm. So with all this happening, you know, but I don't have um, HIV or AIDS. I'm fine. It, it's an airborne disease. And if your immune system is compromised, either through stress or through another illness, you know, for example, you can totally have cancer. And also catch TB because your immune system is com- compromised and people don't know that, you know. So that process of I was a part of other people and now I'm being quarantined. The people I was talking to just 10 minutes ago because they've now, because now they, these lab results have come and they prove that I've got this illness. Now I'm a danger. And that, that I think for me, that was the most painful thing, that it's so easy in life to get excluded. One minute, you are a part of the community. Anything happens that people don't understand, they isolate you. It sounds so, like your situation back in, in high school, where you were excluded from the groups. Yeah. And it's a metaphor for actually what did happen in apartheid and what is happening in our country currently where people are being excluded yeah. and being treated as people. I didn't stop being a human. I didn't have the same honest feelings with emotions. But just because now I've got this, now that people find out that I have this bug, that can make other people sick, that didn't make anybody else sick. But now I, I get isolated. I would come home and my my stepmom and my half-sisters were scared to sit next to me. They were scared to eat in the same plate and in the, using the same cutlery. And, you know, the kitchen counters are being sprayed with, with detergent and all that jazz, you know, that... People can be mean without realizing it sometimes. I'm sure from their side they were just trying to protect themselves, but I think we ought to learn to be more diplomatic and more sensitive about other people. Put yourself in another person's shoes. I didn't choose to get sick. It just happened. And I remember talking to my father about that, and I said, you know, life is very unpredictable. Be careful how you treat people. I believe in karma, big time. So even in our interactions with people of different races, different cultures, you do not exclude someone, for example, just because they're a Muslim. I mean, look what's happening in the world where people are terrified of Muslims because of 9-11 and what happens in the Middle East and, you know. And I've witnessed it firsthand, witnessed people, you know, a Muslim man or a woman walk in or 
and people get uncomfortable, people move from their seat and and it's like, are you serious? Are you are you serious? Yeah, especially from right. someone that that went through something like that where you got excluded almost immediately because of something that you could not control. Yeah, and it's the same thing even in the LGBTQ community. There is nothing wrong with a person. We all have our right to sexuality. It's okay if you do not agree with homosexuality, and it's okay for you as a homosexual person if you don't agree with heterosexuality. But do you then attack a person because they are gay? No. Do you then treat them like they are not human because they are gay? That is not right. No, it's not. And the inverse goes as well. For those people who are gay, some gay people attack straight people. It's not okay either side. It's, it's not okay. Let's accept each other for who we are and let us learn to find our points of um, contact or our common ground and nurture that common ground, you know. I love it. I love everything that you're saying, and I think you hit a lot of key points that are going on in our world right now where people are scared and huddle into their groups and lash out at others because the world is so incredibly diverse, and I think now we're finally realizing it, how amazing this place is but it's scary because people are different in this way that you used to live is not the way that everyone lives and it's not this universal way of life there's so many different ways to live mm-hmm. your life they are. It, it's really interesting to hear your side of the story as well as somebody that through something that you can control were then isolated by your family, even if they weren't trying to do it, but just the way that they were cleaning and protecting themselves in some way, were isolating Mm -hmm. you from the group and almost trying to push you out subconsciously, consciously, whatever it was. But as someone in that situation, Mm -hmm. how did you then start to combat it? Was it through conversation? Was it through action? How did you come back from that? To be quite honest with you, I actually combated it through prayer. I am a Christian, and I'm not ashamed of it. You shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I started praying about it and saying, God, you know, it's like in the Bible, there, there is a story where uh, Moses' sister, she had uh, leprosy. For some time and she was excluded but when she sought out the face of God and prayed God healed her and she was included back so I think in a nutshell that's what pretty much happened I I started praying about it and in praying I started gaining the courage to be able to come out of my shell again I didn't necessarily talk about it this is actually the first time I'm talking and about. And I really appreciate you being so open about it. Yeah, I think now I'm ready. Before I, I wasn't because I finished my chemo, taking my medication mid year last year. That was just six months before I met you. So even after, while I was meeting you, I was recovering from 
six months of heavy medication, you know? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now I'm ready to talk about it. I look back. Yeah, I think for me, it was just prayer to say, you know, God, you created me in your image and likeness. It is your breath that is in my lungs. And my lungs were the ones that were affected. And I said, you're going to heal me in your time and in your way. And you're not only going to heal me physically, but emotionally and spiritually and to mend my heart again, to be able to love people again, because it's difficult when, like what you say, the people you love and trust and, you know, when you are in a vulnerable place, people are just people. They try to preserve themselves. I had to understand that and had to be the bigger and better person and forgive them for that and say, okay, fine. They were inconsiderate in this way, but people are still people. People still mess up. And I believe that God is love and that if you pray and ask him to pour out his love in your heart, it starts taking over you and you start seeing people the way God sees them. And so, yeah, that's how I dealt with this. To me, it was a spiritual thing. It was like, because I believe everything is spiritual and then it manifests in the physical. So, yeah, I wanted my relationship with God, the right place. I was very angry with him. I had to get over that, you know, because I was like, but why me, you know, but yeah. why not me? Yeah. And look who would, who would have thought I'd be on a podcast talking yeah. to an American friend here to to a world of beautiful and amazing people I have yet to meet perhaps or will never meet, I don't know. But I just wanna share my story and encourage anyone, someone out there that two things, all right? First thing, if you have been excluded in any area of life, forgive. That happens to all of us. You are not alone. And once you have forgiven, when you interact with others and you see yourself falling into that similar pattern of also wanting to exclude the other, think twice. Think twice. And remember where you've been. To say, is this really the best solution? I don't know if I make sense. <laughs> that, that was very beautifully said. I, I think that is amazing advice. As someone that knows what it feels like on both sides to do that. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I love your story because you've come through a lot of adversity, both in your control and out of your control both in society and in your personal life. And I, I think that's a, a perfect way to wrap up the show. And I have one final question for you after, after all of this. And this is the last episode in my reflection on apartheid and what I learned coming out of that and your own struggles. What, what's next? So what, what happens now? You've beat TB. You've, you're coming off this trip to Durban that seemed extremely healing and what you needed. And it sounds like the ground is now being settled underneath you. So now what? My next step. <laughs> so as you know, I'm going back to school. Absolutely. Yeah. So I dropped out, but I'm going back to finish my degree in uh, 
And I want to use that which I learn to continue spreading awareness on acceptance, the message of acceptance and the message of forgiveness. So tying it in with the, this uh, episode um, on, you know, the, the impact of apartheid South Africa on, on our nation. There is a commission of reconciliation in the country where a lot of people who were hurt, well, the government set it up to, to, to bring the perpetrators and the victims of apartheid together to perpetrators asking for forgiveness and the, the, the victims having to, to forgive or not to. It's their choice, but the purpose was to bring about forgiveness. I want to use my knowledge in psychology, my experience, my knowledge in in policy making to encourage people to forgive each other and to find ways of being in their differences, respective. I believe that let's nurture the different, let's accept the differences, but let's nurture the common ground. So we don't all have to believe in the same things. We don't all have to live in the same way. We don't all have to have the same beliefs and values, but let us nurture whatever it is that we have in common. Right. And accept accept the differences and to just love, love people unconditionally because you're a person too. I'm a person too. And we expect to be loved, isn't it? So it starts with giving, you know? So I think as a millennial, you know, people accuse us of being uh, lazy and entitled, (laughs) but I think we are very tolerant and forward moving. The past isn't the past. Let us let bygones be bygones. Let us acknowledge that, yes, this wrong was done. I'm now 24 years. For 24 years, they keep talking about the wrong that was done. But very little conversation goes into strategies that will help us move further away from the, from the mistake until the mistake of the past becomes a blurry image. So currently the, the past is so vivid, the future is blurry. And I'm just saying, let's look more to the future and let that be a vivid picture and the past to become blurry. It is an unnecessary past to keep reiterating. And we keep on focusing, hey, white people did this and then, and then I know a lot of white people, you know, I've had the privilege of dating outside my race and interacting with people outside my race who are just like, for goodness sake, now we are scared of interacting with you black people because you're so angry. That's not the solution either. Tit for tat. No, no, I think. We, we we need to just find strategies that are rooted in acceptance of the other. I love and it. 
I love it. And in yeah. It, it, it's a really good message, and this is why one of the reasons I really love talking to you because it's I don't know you put it you put it so well. Yeah, this is a really interesting situation that's all over the globe. So many different parts of our world right now, and we're really trying. There's the sides that are trying to make up for past wrongs, and there's the victims that are trying to cope with what happened. Mm. And like you said, it, it will take time for us to come together. It, it makes me smile and get a lot of hope for the future, meeting people like yourself that can can take some all of these inputs and troubles not only in the past but in your own country and begin to move on and forward and think start to think forward and start to think forward together rather than apart and that really warms my soul so thank you Anezu for coming on the show this has been this has been a lot of fun and it's been my pleasure hey yeah <laughs> Thank you for having me on the show. Of course, anytime. And yeah, I know I have a lot to think about with my visit to South Africa and all these wonderful interviews that I've done over the past months. And I know we will be in contact soon. And everyone listening out there, thanks for tuning in to Oyster World Radio. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of Oyster World Radio. Thanks again, Anaisu Dawa, for coming on the show. Keep being your badass self, and we'll check in again when you're president. Keep up to date on everything going on in the, the big sabbatical on Instagram at Nathan.Wanders and the blog of my partner in crime, Jackie Gishbacher, at gishadawater.com. Check out the links in the show description for more information. Special thanks to Charlie Milliken for all of the Oyster Jams. Check them out on Spotify or at charliemilliken.com. That's M-I-L-L-I-K-I-N. Don't forget to support the show on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Oyster World Radio for only $5 a month. You get all of the behind the scenes plus some unique travel tips, so don't miss out. Once again, all of these links are in the show description. Thanks again for tuning in to Oyster World Radio. We'll be back in two weeks. But until then, this is Nathan Lieberman signing off. I can't take control of my life. If I'm too busy looking at the stars and thinking about all time that's gone by, it's time for a change in my day-to-day scene. Time to turn around from that clock, face the mirror, and change.